Amen. I do love that song, and we'll see as we go through Ruth, the glory of our Redeemer. I invite you to turn there this morning, Ruth 1. We're going to finish up chapter 1, we'll go through from verse 6 through 22. Now we'll read those verses as we begin. Ruth 1, verses 6 through 22. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go! Return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. They said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried." May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. I'm sure you can think of some, but I'll ask you if you've ever had major turning points in your life, but didn't know it at the time. For an example for myself, I can think of the midweek service that I attended where I met Maggie, my wife. At the time, it was just any other midweek service, but would later prove to be pivotal. Um, Wonderful for me, you'll have to ask her how it's turned out, but it was a major turning point 
in our life. Or I think back to the first time I went ice skating and held a hockey stick, you know, and that would shape a lot of my life ongoing. I didn't realize at the time, but a major turning point. Or when I went to a Bible study in college, and that ultimately set me on a path towards vocational ministry and kind of shaped the trajectory of my life to follow. I didn't know it at the time, but that Monday evening Bible study would prove to be a critical turning point for me. There are others that are far more obvious and concrete, and you know at the time, this is a big decision. So I can remember very clearly when I was in the airport coming back from Olathe, and Dennis Ortman gave me a call, and I had to decide then and there, are we going to go to Kansas? All right. That was a critical turning point, and I knew at the time, this is a big decision. And it didn't take me much time to say yes, right? And very quickly, we knew that was the right decision. Or when you are baptized, when you choose to follow the Lord, that is a critical turning point, a big decision. And at the time, you know you were making a big choice. Our text this morning, we have that kind of turning point. And I would speculate, this is a little bit of speculation, but I would say that for two of the people in the story, they know this is a big decision. This is a turning point for them. This is going to shape the rest of their life for them. For one of our characters, Naomi, I don't think she realizes how much of a turning point this is for her life, and she'll only know that later. As we'll see throughout this text, Naomi has a hard time wrapping her head around what is actually going on. She is grieved, she is stricken, she is mourning still and in pain, and will have a difficult time putting the right perspective on what she's going through. For context, if you don't know the context of Ruth or weren't here last week, Naomi is a woman who was married to a man named Elimelech, and they lived in Bethlehem, literally the house of bread, but there was a famine in the house of bread, so they left Bethlehem for Moab, a foreign country there. They and their two sons, Malon and Kilian, and they went, and their sons married Moabite wives, and then all three of the men died, Naomi's husband and her two sons. So they're left husbandless, all three of them, and now we pick up the story with Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. And Naomi here is a woman grieving, a woman in pain, not able to see that she is loved and that the Lord will care for her. Through this big turning point, God's love will persist in her life even if she doesn't know it. And that's the big truth I want to communicate to you from this text. I put it this way, that covenantal love persists for those bewildered by grief. Covenantal love persists for those bewildered by grief, for those who can't see up from down or right from left or right from wrong because of the the pain and the hardship that they've gone through, that for them, whether you know it or not, if you are part of the people of God, that God's covenant love persists for you. And we'll see that in the text this morning for Naomi as she struggles to wrap her head around what is happening. We'll break up the text into three sections first, verses 6 through 13, and I've labeled this Naomi's despairing plea. Naomi, a woman in despairing, and she pleads with her daughters-in-law to return. She urges them, appeals to them to return to Moab. Naomi's despairing plea, verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with their two daughters-in-law. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. 
The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So Naomi is there, and she's been in Moab for about 10 years. She's there with her two daughters-in-law, all of them widowed. And somehow she hears a rumor. She's out in the field, and she hears a rumor. A messenger has said that Bethlehem has bread again. There's food back there. What tragic timing after the death of her husband and sons. Now God visits his people. Visit, in the Old Testament, that language can be either for judgment, God visited his people, or for blessing, God visited his people. Here it's, it's blessing. God has visited his people. He's brought food back to them. And Naomi has nothing left for her in Moab. She has no property or no ties, really, that, no place to support herself. So well, she can cast her lot and go back home and see if there's a family member who will help. There's food there, at least. So that's what she's going to do. She's going to go back home, and she takes her daughters-in-law with her at the start. And on the way there, on the road between Moab and uh, Bethlehem, we have this conversation. And here, Naomi, out of love, dismisses them. It's because she loves her daughters-in-law, because she cares for them, that she pleads with them to go back. And this is actually a a formal dismissal. It has that kind of language. It's a prayer. The Lord grant that you find rest in the house of your husband. What she's saying is, the Lord, praying to God, may he be with you because I've got nothing to give. May he grant you rest or hesed, covenant faithfulness, love. May he grant you that in a husband in Moab. That's the best case scenario for you and for your lives. In fact, Naomi knows that for those two daughters-in-law, she would be a burden to them. Uh, An aging widow with no sons or daughters would be a person you would have to take care of. She wouldn't have a means to support herself, so her daughters-in-law would have to care for her. Naomi thinks, I'm going to be a burden to you. You're going to have to take care of me. So the most loving thing I can do is just say, just, just go, get away from me. I'll fend for myself. You, you have the rest of your lives to live. Go back home, find husbands. And she dismisses them with this formal blessing. And they respond how? They weep and cry and say, no, we want to stay with you, which in and of itself is a wonderful, amazing response. Why? Because they're in-laws. And they get along. And these mothers, uh, this mother-in-law and her daughters-in-law, they have an affectionate bond. They love one another. Think about this. It's not the main point of the text, but I think it's an interesting note that Naomi has somehow demonstrated so much love and care for these two women that they want to follow her instead of going back to their own families. They say, no, we love you. 
So it's clearly something has gone right in this relationship, so much so that they're leaving to, willing to leave their own families to travel with Naomi. And it does ask, prompt me to ask the question, or something I ponder myself, like, have you loved your own family well enough that they would follow you in such a situation? Like, has God's love, has the love of Christ so um, demonstrated itself in your relationships with your own family, with your own in-laws, with the people that you're close to who can bug you most, with those people, have you been so loving and is God's love so evident in you that they would say, I want to go wherever she's going. I want to go wherever he's going. Because clearly something is different about that person. God's love is there with them. That's what's going on here. But Naomi selflessly pushes them away. Have you ever seen the, the old movie Harry and the Hendersons? I know it's an abrupt change, but go, go with me here. Um, so Harry and the Hendersons is this old movie with John Lithgow, and it's the story of a family who hits Bigfoot with their car. Uh, that's how it starts. They, they hit Bigfoot. They think Bigfoot is dead, so they take him home. They're going to do something with him. And then he's not dead. He's awake, and he's alive now, and now he's going to live with them. And they're going to adopt a Bigfoot, and they name him Harry, which makes sense. And... Hijinks ensue, um, but that doesn't last forever because sooner or later hunters are going to come and try and take Harry. And you can't let the secret of Bigfoot getting out, so they have to do something with Bigfoot. Bigfoot cannot live with them. So what they do, they take Bigfoot, Harry, out to the forest, and John Lithgow dismisses them, the dad of the movie. He says, go. Go, Harry. Get out of here. You've got to go back where you belong now. And he's tearing up. It's a very emotional scene. So. And then he actually like hits him. I, didn't, I watched the YouTube clip. I didn't remember this. He, he takes a swing and punches Bigfoot in the face. says, go. He's trying to be mean to him to get him to leave. Get out of here. Can't you see? You, we don't want you here anymore. He's trying to be mean to him because he knows it's the most loving thing for him. That Bigfoot cannot live in the society and the culture. He, he's got to go back with his own people. I wonder if Bigfoot is based on Ruth. I don't know. They may have read Ruth, but they, they, maybe that's where the connection is because that's what Naomi is doing with her daughters-in-law. Say, go. You have to go back to your own people. You won't find a home here amongst my people. Naomi has no hope for these daughters to find a home in Israel. Why? Well, she says, I don't have any other sons for you to marry. I think this is a reference to leveret marriage. This will come up later in the book. But the concept of leveret marriage in the law and in that culture was if a wife's husband died, then one of his brothers or closest kinsmen had the responsibility to marry her, take her as a wife, so that she would be protected, cared for, and so that through their kids, the deceased husband's legacy, his name, would live on, inheritance, and so on. So it was a custom culturally, a means of taking care of the widow and for the memory and the heritage of the deceased to live on. And Naomi is saying, I don't have anybody to do that. I don't have sons for you to marry. Are you going to wait around 20 years, even if I, by some miracle, pulled a Sarah and had one at an old age? Like, it's not going to happen. And there's another implication in there. Naomi is convinced you're not going to find a husband in Israel. I don't have one for you. If you go with me, you're not going to find one. Go back and find a husband back in Moab. Because what saint 
would take in an outsider like a divorced Moabite. There's a lot of cultural clash between the Israelites and the Moabites. And in Naomi's mind, and logically she's right, in those cultures clash, no Israelite is going to take in a Moabite widow. I'm too far outside, too different, too far gone outside the covenant community. So go back, you'll have better luck in Moab. I wonder if we often think like Naomi about those who we deem outside the people of God. I don't think you'll find a home here with us. Our culture's too different. You're too different. It's better for you just to kind of stay away because, I don't know, we Christians, we're weird. I don't think you really want to be a part of us. We might not say that, but I wonder if we often think it when we meet our neighbors and think, no, I don't think CBC would fit for them. Probably should invite them because, I don't know, it's just too different. They're too far outside. And what we see here, and one of the great themes of Ruth is that God loves to bring outsiders in and find a home for them. And if you're the person who thinks, I'm too far outside, the church is weird, I don't like it, I don't fit with that culture, I think there are a lot of people who are in that camp. I think there are a lot of people who are friendly to Christianity, not hostile or antagonistic towards Christianity or Christ or the Bible. What they've heard of Jesus, they like, they think they like, he seems to have a good reputation broadly, but they just don't think they would fit with church culture. They're a little bit scared of church culture, so they think, no, this is not me, it just doesn't fit, I'm too far outside. And I just wonder, how many of those people would welcome, they were be welcomed and find a home if somebody would just take them in. If somebody would just ask them, I think there are probably a lot more people who are friendly to the culture of the church and would love that kind of supporting, loving system where somebody just to, to bring them in. And again, one of the themes of Ruth is that God brings people in. And that outsiders become children of God and a part of his people. Why? Because he has covenantal love for people and he commits to them. And that's what we see here as Ruth commits to Naomi in verses 14 through 18. Ruth decides to align herself, despite Naomi's objections, to align herself with Naomi and with Naomi's God. Here in verses 14 through 18, we see Ruth's decisive allegiance. We've heard Naomi's despairing plea, now we have Ruth's decisive allegiance. She is going to align herself with Naomi. And they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go I will go, and where you lodge I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So here the daughters-in-law respond to Naomi's pleading for them to go. And notice how Ruth and Orpah, the two daughters-in-law, are always linked together here. Over and over again, they're referred to as the daughters-in-law. Even in the first five verses, we don't know which daughter married which son because they're just kind of grouped together. But now they're differentiated. They have totally different responses. Orpah kisses Naomi, literally kissing her goodbye, and she departs. 
A lot of Christians and preachers and commentaries throughout the ages have really criticized Orpah's decision, but I don't think that's what we're supposed to do from the text itself. I don't think the text leads us to be terribly critical of Orpah. She did what was expected. She did what her mother-in-law asked. She was obedient. And her mother-in-law, Naomi, blessed her. She loved her. She responded with, at first, protesting, weeping, no, I want to go with you. But finally, when Naomi insisted, she said, fine, I'll, I'll go. She kissed her. They left peacefully, amicably, and she was gone. Orpah maybe didn't realize then how big of a turning point decision that would be, but in the moment, it was, it was a sensible, logical decision. So the difference between Orpah and Ruth is not bad and good. It is expected and totally unexpected. What Ruth does is out of the ordinary, is extraordinary. It is a, a remarkable decision, conviction of love to stay with Naomi and cling to her. That's what she did. Orpah kisses, Ruth clings and says, no, I'm going with you. She affirms her commitment. She basically tells Naomi, ain't no mountain high enough, ain't no valley low enough, ain't no river wide enough to keep me from getting to you, right? That's a rough translation of what she's saying in these verses. This is a, a formal vow that she makes. This is actually covenantal language that Ruth speaks here. And this is why we hear it rehearsed in weddings very often, right? Because this is a vow. She's making a covenant with Naomi. She uses covenantal language. Your people will be my people. That's kind of language that covenants use throughout the Old Testament that God uses. I'll be your God and you'll be my people. It, it references that. And she's saying, I will go wherever you go. Staying or lodging, coming, going, wherever you go, I'll be with you. Even in death, even beyond death. This covenant actually goes beyond death because she says, where you're buried, I'll be buried there too. Normal expectation would be that Naomi would die first. And Ruth is saying, wherever you land, I'll stay with you even then. So she is committing to her covenantally. Even invoking a curse upon herself if she fails to do it. She says, May the Lord, and that is the covenant name of God, Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, may the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. So what Ruth is saying is, I will go with you and your God, the Yahweh, the covenant God who I know, he is my God. This is a conversion. If you want one of the great pictures of conversion in the Old Testament or in all of Scripture, really, this is a picture of conversion. This is what happens. This is what it looks like when somebody says, I'm leaving my old gods and my old way of life behind, and I'm going and I'm following the Lord, and I'm going to be with his people. This is conversion. It's what it looks like. Consider what Ruth left behind. She left behind, again, her gods of Moab, she left behind comfort. She left behind the possibility of marrying again. She left behind comfort and security. She instead went with, I'm going to love this woman and her God. Whatever happens into the unknown, to quote Frozen 2, she's going. It's what Jesus demands of people. It's what Jesus demands of all who would convert and follow him. He says in Luke 9.23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. 
This is Ruth losing her life for God's sake and for Naomi's sake. And as we look at this wonderful conversion, my question to you is, have you been converted? I'm not necessarily asking, have you been baptized or have you prayed a prayer? But those things often go with that, right? And normatively go with that conversion. But I'm asking you, have you been converted? Have you consciously left behind a previous life and said, I am following the Lord, Yahweh, and his son and his people, no matter what? Have you left everything behind? Or are you still clinging to the things of Moab? Clinging to a nice, comfortable, secular worldview that's really easy to get along with people at work and family members? Are you clinging to religious pluralism? Which says that, oh, there's all sorts of different gods and that's just fine because that keeps things comfortable here. Are you clinging to that? Are you clinging to sexual morality? Are you clinging to money, comfort, your future, whatever you have that you don't want God to touch because that would be very risky for you? Have you been thoroughly and fully converted to follow Jesus? Because there's a difference between true conversion and just coming to church on Sundays. There's a difference there. Coming to church on Sundays and attending is very easy. But having Scripture and Jesus Christ himself shape your entire lives and your entire week, the entire way you think, doing that is a totally different thing. It includes attending church on Sundays. But it is entire life reformation. I'm not saying it means you're perfect. None of us are. But it means that you seek in your heart to bring everything under the submission of God who saved you. That is conversion. So I ask, have you been converted? Have you not been converted? If you're there and you say, you know, I don't think I have been. I'm really scared of it because it is scary. Then I'd say, yeah, it is scary. It was scary for Ruth. It must have been. It involves risk to leave everything behind and say, I'm following the Lord no matter what. But the message of Ruth and of this section is that God loves his people and he'll give them what they need, even when they can't see it. And Ruth's commitment to Naomi, her covenant of love to Naomi, is reflective of the heart and character of God who covenants with his people. He says, I will be with you. I will keep my covenant to you. I will give you what you need, and I will love you and care for you no matter what. God will ensure that Naomi is cared for and loved, even through Ruth, who commits herself to her. That's what's happening here, though Naomi can't see it. We see that in verses 19 through 22. Naomi has what I would call a distorted perspective. Verses 19 through 22 show us Naomi's distorted perspective. She can't quite figure out or see what God is doing. Look at verse 19. So two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? 
So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So they return to Bethlehem, and there's a buzz in the air, not because of the Moabite widow, but because Naomi's here. And apparently something's different about her. It's hard to exactly tell from the text. It could be that they're just saying, hey, Naomi's here. I'm excited about that. Or it could be, and they say, oh, look, is that Naomi? Or it could be they're saying, is that Naomi? I think it's the latter. I think there's a question with it. Is that really Naomi? She, uh, she looks different. Ten years have not been kind to her. And she recognizes this. She says, yeah, there, there is a change. God himself, the Almighty, says El Shaddai, the Hebrew word, he has been terrible to me. He is against me. He has testified against me. Clearly, I'm being judged. Clearly, I've done something wrong. I've sinned because this has happened to me. And this is evidence of God's testimony against me. The Lord himself is against me. So call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. God is against me. And she says, I, I went away to Moab full, and I've come back empty. And what we see here is the narrator, I think, subtly telling us that Naomi's perspective is not quite correct. Did Naomi go to Moab full? Why did they go to Moab? Because they were hungry. They were starving. Did she come back empty? Imagine being Ruth sitting next to her as Naomi says, I've got nothing. And Ruth says, I'm right here. The, the narrator told you, I think the story tells us, Naomi wants to, herself to be called Mara. Nobody in the story will call her that. The author won't. Everybody else just, you know, you're Naomi. Stop it. Don't directly say that, but the, nobody else calls her Mara. She continues to have her name, whether she likes it or not. And then, in summary in verse 22, what does it say? Well, here's the summary of the events. She came back, and she's got Ruth with her, and it's barley harvest, meaning there's food. So, does Naomi have nothing? The narrator kind of argues with Naomi and says, no, she's not seeing it fully. There's hope. She has something. God has cared for her through it all. Naomi does get something right. She sees that the Lord is sovereign. That's what she does well. That's what she does right. She says, this is the Lord's fault, essentially. The Almighty has done this with me. And that is the perspective of the Old Testament through the New Testament, all of Scripture, that good or bad, whatever happens, God ultimately is sovereign and in control. That's what Naomi understands and she gets that right. She goes to the Lord in the same way that uh, Jeremiah went to the Lord when he was struggling with his own prophetic ministry, same way that Job pleads with and contends with the Lord, same way that Abraham himself questions the Lord when he still doesn't have a son. The people of the Old Testament who are faithful to the covenant God, they may question God, but they never question his sovereignty. They know who to turn to. They don't turn anywhere else. They go directly to the source, to God himself, say, you are the Almighty, you're the Lord, you're sovereign over this, so what's going on? And that's what Naomi does well. She understands God's sovereignty, that even if he isn't the one who directly killed her husband, that even if he doesn't sin himself or cause people to sin, that God is sovereign over all sin and over all evil and over all tragedy, and God is there no matter what happens. So she goes to him. Because he is sovereign. She gets that right. What she doesn't get right is God's love. Or his purposes. 
She knows he's sovereign. She's struggling with, is he good? She says, you're against me. The Lord is against me. And that's where she's mistaken. I don't think the text is that critical of her in it either. It's just relating, this is where Naomi's at. She's struggling and she's grieving because she's in pain because she's truly faced tragedy and hardship and she's being very real about it. And in that, I think we can sympathize with her, we can empathize with her. All of us have faced grief. I, I think all of us, in one way or another, have been grieving and lamenting in some way over the past couple of years just because this has been a weird time with challenges that we weren't prepared for, weren't ready for, and we all deal with it in our own way. And all of us probably haven't understood it all in correct perspective at times. And some of us have been through real grief. And for all of us who are grieving, there is a word for us that God's love persists even when we don't see it or don't get it right. Even if we don't think he loves us, we can know covenantally he does. There's a concept in child development known as object permanence. You know what this is? It's a significant thing for kids when they grasp object permanence, and that's the understanding that even if something goes away and I can't see it, it's still there. So, when playing peekaboo with mom, and mom covers her face, and the child understands, even though I can't see her face, I know her face is still there. Or you had a toy behind your back. They don't go look around wondering where the toy went. They know it's behind your back. Now give it to me. But the point is, there's object permanence. They, they even if they can't see it, even if they can't touch it, feel it, and there's nothing sensory that would tell them that it's there, they know because they know that it's there. That is what mature Christians and mature people of God, what they will eventually develop through the test of life, is object permanence with God himself. That even if I don't touch him or see him or know him or feel him, even though all sense of him is lost, I know he's there. And not only object permanence with God himself, but object permanence with God's love and his covenant faithfulness. That even if I don't feel his love, even if I can't see it, even if I can't hear it, I know because I've experienced it before and because it's been taught to me that God's love is there. That is what Christians will eventually develop as they walk with God through hardship. And that is what we need to develop. And it can be hard to see in the midst of grief, in the midst of pain. That's why we keep rehearsing truths over and over again, gospel truths, week in and week out, confessing them so that when we can't grasp them with anything we can see or touch, we know them. We call that faith. Faith is just the ability to see in the dark. You can say faith is night vision. It's the ability, and I'm stealing this illustration, I think, from somebody else, the ability to walk around your room when the lights are off because you've been in that room so many times, you know where the bed is, you know where the chair is, you know where the, sometimes where the toys are. But you have the ability to walk around, even in the dark, because you've seen it in the light. It's how we know that even though it's gray out, the sun's still shining. It's faith. 
Faith isn't guessing. It's just knowing, even when you can't see it. And that's what God builds in his people through his covenantal love, repeated over and over and over again, and seen chiefly in the cross of Christ himself. We have seen and we know and we rehearse these truths that God has sent his love down to us. And his son died on the cross for us. That Jesus is resurrected from the dead and ascended on high to build a new kingdom, a new creation that will one day manifest itself and replace this dark world. We rehearse these truths so that we know that when times are tough, for those years when you don't know what to write in the Christmas newsletter. Because everything's been hard. But you can write, my Redeemer lives, His grace is enough, and His covenant love for me will persist because I've seen it in the cross of Christ. And there's a kingdom waiting for me no matter what happens in this life. That's the kind of faith that I will build in and through these women as we read along. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this text. Uh, So many things going on here show us um, what grief is like. In some ways, a proper way to grieve, to go to God and wrestle with him and contend with him, even if we can't see everything, even if we don't get everything right. In the midst of pain and hardship, we can know who our God is. And then, Lord, in the midst of that, help us be on it to, to know that your love is for us and that hasn't gone away. But your love persists because your son lives and reigns and is taken away. Death and sin and will give us life forevermore. Lord, help us to hold on to this love of yours that persists and then to be able to live in such a way that is communicated with all around us that we may be lights that shine for you, not because of our strength, but by your grace and by your spirit, we pray.